So it's good to be back in the book of Luke for me. I love studying the book of Luke um, and teaching the book of Luke. And if you remember, so it's been since the beginning of the summer. So um, I'll just recap, right, why we're doing the book of Luke. Who can, who can, anybody know why we're doing the book of Luke? I said it every week during the pandemic. Well, not really every week. What's that? Yeah, upside down kingdom. That's kind of the main theme. What else? Get to know Jesus, right? To say, here's a picture I have in my head of Jesus, and we want that picture to be shaped by the story of the Bible, right? Not to be shaped by Lumo project videos or <laughs> the chosen or, you know, whatever it is, right? We have these pictures of Jesus. And so we want to ask the question, right? What did Jesus teach? What did Jesus do? And then to bridge that to us, right? How does that affect us as individuals? And how does that affect us as a church? And so the quick recap of the book of Luke, if you remember, we did the infancy narrative um, and the intro and the infancy narrative uh, last year at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, then Jesus is going around, the next part after that infancy narrative is Jesus is going around his hometown area. So he's in the region of, um, of Galilee in northern Israel. Um, then after... So this is what we read, all that stuff where he's healing people, he's doing the Sermon on the Mount, all that jazz. Um, after that, he, in the middle of the last chapter, in verse 51, there's like a sharp break in the story. And this is really important because this is the section we're going to be in now um, for quite a while. And the section is Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem, is how he puts it, right? Like, now I'm heading to Jerusalem. And so the major kind of two themes of this section are he's heading to Jerusalem, um, to uh, head to the cross. And then the second thing is, while he's heading to Jerusalem, he's getting his, his dudes ready to launch the church, right? So they're sort of in a uh, church planting boot camp with Jesus, right? These guys, he, he knows he's going to be taking off, and these are the guys that are going to be starting the church. So he really ramps up the discipleship. And if you remember, I don't know if I have a slide for this. Let's see. No. Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah, okay, whoops. I, that was Reddit comment, you saw that? That was the first slide from the first sermon last year. Must not have got deleted. Anyway, um, at the beginning of chapter nine, we read this part here. Do you remember this whole thing? Um, I'm not gonna read the whole thing here, um, but let's see, where's the important part? Uh, he, he, anyway, you can kind of see here. He's sending out the 12 disciples on this special mission to go and to spread the kingdom of God. And so today, it's kind of a weird sermon because although it was at the beginning of the summer when we did this, I should have looked it up. It was probably in the middle of the spring, actually, uh, when we did this sermon on the beginning of Luke chapter 9. But um, what we're going to read today is basically the exact same passage that we read a little while ago, but expanded. So this time, instead of, uh, sending, the 70, uh, sorry, instead of sending the 12, he's sending a bigger group. And so that's what we're going to read right here. Um, what the heck? Sorry. All right, here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to leave it on this. It only synced like half the slides, and it kept half the... All right, so just pretend you got your books. You can follow along. This is how we're going to do this. Um, all right, so Luke 10, um, verse 1. It's basically the same passage, but with a bigger group. So after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out ahead of him two by two, in every town and place where he himself was about to go. So real quick, I wanna give you a little uh, pitch for 
Like um, we've talked about this before and we actually watched a whole video on this during our summer series. Do you guys remember the idea about textual criticism? Okay, so there's a whole bunch of ancient manuscripts that we piece together. And do you remember um, the 10 minute Bible project? No, 10 minute Bible hour. Yeah, that guy, Matt, he, he did this with his church where he had all the kids copy a poem and then he tried to piece the poem together from pieces. Okay, so that's how we put our Bibles together. And so have you ever noticed when I'm teaching in a sermon and I'm like, it's like that time that Jesus sends the 70 or wait, is it 72? I think I've said that like a handful of times trying to remember. Is it 70 or 72? And then when I was studying this passage, I realized why I can never remember if it's 70 or 72. Because half of the Bible ancient Bible manuscripts say 70 and half of them say 72. And so most of the places in the Bible where we talk about textual criticism, what we say is it doesn't really matter. Like there, there's no big differences in the, you know, there's not a verse that's like half of the old te- or half of the old manuscripts say like, oh, Jesus isn't God. And half of them say Jesus is God. Most of the little differences are stuff like this. And so this is one where most scholars agree that it was probably the actual number was 72. But the number 70 is like a really important number in the Old Testament. And so some scribe came along and goes, man, you know what? This would fit better if I changed it to 70. And so he changed it. And then people started copying that. And so the number is actually 72, even though a lot of the manuscripts say 70. Um, But here's an important part, too. If you look, uh, what it says is 72, specifically 72 others. So I always read this and just kind of thought to myself, oh, yeah, like, and then the disciples, they go and do this again. This isn't the disciples doing this again. Um, This is 72 uh, other guys, you know, other followers of Jesus. And so let me tell you why this is important. And uh, in the Reformation, especially, they came up with this idea where the way it kind of used to work was you had professional pastors and priests, you know, who were in charge of doing the ministry. And then everybody else was what they called the laity, right? Just a bunch of normal chumps. And uh, you guys were, you know, everybody else, not even cool. You didn't even go to theology school and you're not as important as the priests. And then the Reformation guys, Luther and Calvin, they came along and was like, they came along and said, that's ridiculous. This distinction between the work that the laity does and the work that the professional ministers do. And they, they, uh, they said, one of the famous ones was uh, Martin Luther's barber, right? Talking to his barber, right? You cut hair for the Lord kind of a thing. Um, the, that, that wall was completely demolished by these dudes in the Reformation. But this is a place where we see that. Because if we only had Jesus sending the 12, we could say, yeah, look, the ministry is for the professionals, right? These are the leaders. These are the guys. But that's not what happens. He sends the 12, then he sends the 72. And what he does is he sends the 72 out ahead of him. So um, Jesus, remember, he's in his ministry and he's kind of snaking his way down, well, down on a map, but actually up on a mountain um, through the area heading towards Jerusalem. And so these 72, what they're called to do is kind of be new versions of John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist's ministry? What he was called to do, there's that verse in Isaiah where it talks about how um, how they're supposed to... Um, level the the road for the king as the king is coming and this is kind of the idea of what's going on here is um, they're getting the city ready for the coming king and so i love this also what happens he sends them out go be new versions of john the baptist and i need you to go and do it two by two this is also really important and this is where i get this from we talk about this at the porch a lot Um, i'll say this too this idea of two by two this is not a rule for all time Right? So it's not like um, if some 
missionary goes out by themselves and has this amazing mission. Well, it was sinful because there wasn't two by two. This is not like the law of God, but this is really, really, really good advice. Because two folks working together in ministry, uh, they can encourage each other, they can fill in gaps, right? Some people are gonna be good at one thing, some people are gonna be good at other stuff. And we actually see this in the ministry of a couple of dudes like in the New Testament, right? We have Peter and John um, early in the book of Acts. Uh, in chapter two, is it chapter two? No, chapter two is Pentecost. Then right after that, they go to the temple, Peter and John, and uh, they heal the guy, and then they do this big sermon, and everybody gets saved, and then they get arrested. But we see that, Peter and John. And then you jump forward in the book of Acts, and you see uh, Paul and Barnabas, right, are doing this. Um, and then you see Paul and Barnabas, they actually have a pretty horrible breakup, right? And then you see Paul and Silas, they go out on these missions. And what I always say, you guys have definitely heard this joke before, but talking about the mission and stuff is, look, if Paul needed somebody else to go with him, you probably do too. Because you stink and Paul didn't stink, right? Paul was really good at this. And even Paul thought to himself, you know what, I don't want to do this by myself. And there's even a section in the book of Acts where Paul shows up in a city and he kind of just hangs out for a little bit. And then his team shows up and then he starts sharing the gospel. And what most kind of Bible scholars think is going on there is Paul is a little timid. And when his buddies show up, they give him the encouragement to like, uh, to really get to the ministry. And so Jesus sends these guys out, right? Two by two, what are they supposed to do? Verse two, let's keep going. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So the harvest is plentiful. This is, uh, Jesus uses a ton of farm imagery, right? If you, you guys notice that when you read the New Testament, tons of farm imagery. Um, if he was around now, I bet he would be using tech imagery. You know, there's so much VC funding or whatever. I don't know how you guys' jobs work, right? <laughs> um, but the image is clear, right? We, even though none of us, I mean, anybody here grow up on a farm? Wait, Kayla, did you, was it a farm, like a real farm? All right, see, I, I grew up in San Francisco. We don't know about farming, right? I always joke, right? The only thing people grow here is stuff you can smoke and you're not supposed to grow it, right? That's the only stuff that gets grown in San Francisco. Um, we don't know about farming, but the imagery is clear, right? There's a lot of people out there who need the gospel proclaimed to them. And there's, uh, they need to see the truth of, the, of King Jesus. And Jesus is calling these 72 disciples to be a part of that work. And what he says here is the laborers are few. Now, the temptation with the mission of God, when I get up here and I talk about the mission of God and we're a missional church and all this stuff, right? The, the temptation is going to be like this. Yeah, that's really cool. I hope somebody else really does that. Okay, I hope somebody else invites people to dinners. I hope somebody else invites people to church. I hope somebody else is investing in their friends and neighbors. But Jesus' challenge is this, like, it's not somebody else. There's not enough already, right? We need more workers. And we can think of every excuse, right? Well, I don't know how. Um, I'm timid. Uh, I've not really had a ton of success in the past when sharing my faith. Uh, it's going to cost me something. Or here's another one, like, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to begin, well, here, Jesus gives you the answer, where to begin, right here. Pray, he says, pray for more workers, right? The mission of God always starts with prayer. And if the mission of God in your life doesn't start with praying for people, it's for one of a few reasons. First, it's because you're an idiot. Second, just, I mean, it's not bright to think I can do all this without, on my own, right? The second reason is you don't really believe that it's God that changes hearts. And somewhere deep down, you think I can convince people into this. If I'm a good enough apologist or whatever, people will come to faith. 
Um, you have a high third, like you kind of have a high view of yourself and everything that you can do. And uh, the, the last thing here is maybe you don't really have a grasp on the work of the enemy, right? You, you think I can take on this grand mission, I can push back against the enemy by myself. It's ridiculous. And so look what Jesus says in verse 3. He even talks about the risk and the, the, the dealing with the enemy. He says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So Jesus sends them out. And what he says is go out and be lambs in the midst of wolves. Um, there's a lot here in this little phrase, right? Lambs are gentle. Um, do you guys remember the army of the lamb from Revelation? We, a couple weeks ago, we, we watched the Bible Project video on Revelation. And the army of the lamb, they go out, and how do they win? By doing the same kind of things that the lamb of God did, by, by, uh, with humility and service and love. And that's how we're called to be sent out. And when we do, Jesus says, you're going to be lambs, but there's also, it's not just like lambs among other lambs. You're going to be lambs, and there's going to be wolves around. And this happens, sadly, in a couple of ways. One of the ways is this happens inside the church as you're trying to do ministry, right? False teachers, you remember the whole book of 1 John, uh, church politics where people start jockeying over power. Well, you have moralists and legalists who are trying to put people down with burdens and rules. Those are wolves among lambs. But also, right, there's wolves outside of the church. Uh, think of, I don't know if you guys have read a bunch of stuff about like what's going on with pastors in Afghanistan right now. These pastors and these churches, these, there's not a ton of them, but these church communities in Afghanistan as the Taliban is starting to take over again, these guys are being sheep among wolves. I mean, they're really living this out. Or um, this is happening with a lot of churches uh, and the Chinese government right now. Or in our circles, we're not being quite oppressed the same way, but you know, you've got groups like the new people, like the new atheists, who are very like hostile against the Christian faith. Those are wolves among lamb. Um, and uh, we're called to defend our faith, and we're called to give reasons for the hope that we have within us, but we're called to do it as lambs among wolves. And here's the problem. Too many followers of Jesus would rather be wolves among lambs when they go out into the world. And we think, this is because this is the natural mode of the human heart, isn't it? Is I got to move my way, I got to gain my advantage uh, kind of maneuver into power and then dominate and win that way. I got to outsmart opponents. But that's literally the opposite of what Jesus tells his people to be. They're supposed to be lambs among wolves. A great example of this is Stephen in Acts chapter 7. So Stephen gets before the Sanhedrin, right? Talk about wolves. These are the guys that just killed Jesus. Most of the guys in that room were probably there when they killed Jesus just a few months earlier or whatever it was. And he gets up and he's bold in his gospel proclamation. But then how does he win in that situation? What happens? He dies, right? He doesn't live. They stone him to death. And as they stone him to death, he dies humbly with his eyes focused upward on heaven. And he's forgiving the people who are stoning him. And what was the result of the death of Stephen? Was there was an explosion of the gospel, right? The church scattered because they were afraid of the persecution, and as they went, they took the gospel with them. And then the second thing was like Paul's conversion probably started like the, him thinking about, I mean, him watching Stephen die definitely had an impact on Paul. There's no way that it didn't. And so it took Jesus knocking him off his horse or whatever, you know, with the light and everything. But this definitely had an impact on him. And so Stephen's death served a wider purpose for Jesus. And so now that he's in, uh, in heaven, right, the intermediate heaven, you guys learned all about that, in the presence of the Lord, if you went up there right now and you asked Stephen, would you do it again? He would say, definitely. 
Lambs among wolves. Totally worked, and it was totally worth it. All right, so Jesus then continues. He says, look, guys, I need you to go out and do this harvest. I need you to uh, be lambs among wolves, but here's your specific instructions for this specific mission. Verse four, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road, which was kind of a big deal because this is a hospitality culture, and these greetings on the road would take a long time. So basically what he's saying there is just move, move to your destination. You're all going to be assigned a town. Go to your town. Verse 5, whatever uh, house you enter, say, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So I'm not going to beat this whole thing to death because we did that uh, in the, that part is literally word for word from, you know, pretty close to word for word from the beginning of Luke 9 when Jesus sends out the, uh, the 12 disciples. But basically the idea, there's a couple ideas here. First is travel light. Um, these are not universal principles. Again, remember, Jesus is telling this to these specific, you know, missionaries at this specific time. Um, in, you know, in this culture, he's telling them travel light. Um, the idea, though, is universal. Trust God as you go. So this isn't a universal call for church plants not to fundraise or for missionaries not to fundraise. Don't take any money with you or don't even bring a walking stick or don't bring shoes, you know, whatever it was. Um, and remember from the beginning of Luke um, 9, we talked about that probably means don't bring extra shoes, extra, you know, stuff. Um, but Paul seemed to travel with stuff, right? So this isn't a universal command. Like, you remember the part where Paul's, like, talking about, hey, bring me my books. You know, Paul had some stuff, which is one of my favorite parts of the Bible, by the way. Bring me my books. Yes, very godly, Paul. Um, but he says, as you travel light, you're going to go, you're going to get to your town. And when you get to your town, find people of peace. So the ESV, this is one of the reasons I like the ESV, because some translations will translate this, find persons of peace or something like that. But the ESV keeps the original Greek, which says, uh, sons of peace. And son of means, like, in that culture, you would say son of whatever. This is what this person is all about. So one example is in the book of Acts, there's a guy named Joseph. And he's a super encouraging guy. And so they give him a nickname, the son of encouragement, which in uh, is it Greek is Barnabas. Right? So that's how Barnabas gets his name. He's the son of encouragement. And so they're supposed to find sons of peace, right? People who are marked by Peace. These are the kind of people that Jesus says you're going to use as a springboard to engage in your mission. Now, remember, this is a Jewish area, and these are all Jewish folks, part of the, the Old Testament covenant. Um, they know, you know, part of the Old Testament covenant people, right? These are folks who are traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. These are religious people. And so, theoretically, there should have been a lot of these kind of people. They should have been open and ready for the word of God and ready for the Messiah, not opposed to it. And so Jesus says, find genuine people, not the kind of people that are showing up to test me and trick me and all that stuff. Find the actual people. And then when you find those people, be content with your situation there. We don't know how long these guys stayed there, probably a week or two. I don't know. It could be longer. But he says, look, you know, they put something in front of you. It's not your favorite food in the world. Whatever, eat it anyway, right? Um, don't jump from house to house. Oh, that guy offered me a better place to stay. Because the mission of God can never be about personal gain. Now, let me jump just this idea of personal gain to our context. Is Our initial thought is, well, let's get all judgy with Kenneth Copeland and his private jet, right? Personal gain, Joel Osteen lives in a mansion and you know, whatever. And I, okay, that's true. But for most of us, that's not going to be the, 
not going to be the motivation, right? We're not going to have that temptation. None of us are getting rich off of sharing the gospel with our neighbors. So what is our personal gain is really, and this is what we're going to talk about next week, so I'm, um, I'm going to save this a little bit, but our motivation a lot of times for sharing the gospel is still personal gain. It's just, man, now I'll have something to brag about at the meeting, right? Now I'll have something to sit down with John and watch him smile when I tell about how I got to share with my neighbor. That's still personal gain, right? That's not the reason we're doing this. We're doing this because we love people, because we have been loved. And we're going to talk all about that motivation, like what's in your heart, what motivates you um, to share the gospel. All right, so he, he, he continues talking about the specific uh, purpose of the mission and that sort of stuff. Verse 9, he tells them, heal the sick. Uh, in it, in those towns, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So heal sick people. Um, again, we talked about this before when we talked about uh, healing in the beginning of chapter 9. And what I said was, look, we, we're not going to start a healing ministry here at the porch where you can show up and I'm going to tip over your wheelchair and hope you stand up on the way down. You know what I mean? We're not going to, or I hit you with my jacket. Didn't we watch one of those videos at one point of Benny Hinn? Uh, the one where they turned it into the lightsaber. Anyway, uh, we're not going to do that, right? But what we're going to do at the porch is we're going to pray for everybody who's sick to be healed. And the reason is because sometimes they are, right? Not everybody gets healed when we pray for them, but sometimes they are, and that's cool. But we're not going to limit this to just like miraculous, charismatic healing, right? That's not what we're going to do. We're going to say the, the world is fallen and broken. And the idea of healing was Jesus showing people what the world, the way it's supposed to be and turning things back, right? You're not supposed to be sick. You're not supposed to be dying, all this stuff. So every healing is like a return to Eden. Well, there's other ways that we can do that for people. So we look at how is the world fallen and Babylon, the system of Babylon, how is it affecting this person's life? And then what can we as a church do to turn that around? What can we do to show them the way that it's supposed to be? And sometimes that's feeding people. Sometimes that's helping people with housing, whatever it is. There's a lot of different ways that we can do this. But as we do this, we're going to proclaim the kingdom of God. We're not just a social organization, right, who's trying to help our neighbors. We're trying to help our neighbors with uh, the gospel, right? And we're telling them, this is why I'm doing this, because the world's not supposed to be like this. And so we don't want to just break the gospel down into like the... the um, the four spiritual laws or whatever it is. We want to share the whole gospel, which is the whole story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, and tell them how they fit into that. But part of that, and this is the part we usually cop out, look at what Jesus says, verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So again, the dust of the feet and everything. I'm just going to give you this little spiel. I literally copied this and pasted it from the sermon on Luke 9. So you've heard this before if you watched that sermon. But um, let me say a couple of things about this wiping the dust off the feet. The first is they're going to um, Jewish cities, right? These are Jewish guys going to other Jewish people in the land of Israel. And so this is still at this point, this is a mission to proclaim God's coming kingdom to the people who are already supposed to understand the coming kingdom of God. And what was happening here was there was the custom with Gentiles where when a Jewish person would go hang out in a Gentile house or area, on their way out, they would shake the dust off their feet because they don't want to bring any of that nasty Gentile stank home with them, right? You, you can't get this dirty Gentile dust in your house or you'll become unclean. And so they, this was this Jewish custom. And so um, these Jewish folks that 
these uh, missionaries are going to, they should have understood the gospel and been ready for this. And so by rejecting Jesus, and we'll see this next week where he says, by rejecting you, they're rejecting me. By rejecting Jesus, it's a pretty big deal. And so Jesus tells them, take this custom that these guys love and flip it, right? And, and say, this is happening to you, right? Don't just assume because you're born in the covenant people of God that you're okay and your heritage will save you, right? And so this was a very specific thing in this culture. It's not a universal principle. Um, remember, and let me tell you why it's not. First, this rejection of these towns is not permanent. Because the first thing we read in the book of Acts is they get to Jerusalem, everybody congregates, Pentecost happens, and then they turn around and they come right back through these towns. So just in a little bit of time, the gospel is going to come back to these people again. So it's not even a permanent rejection. Um, the second thing is, look, there's no command ever in the Bible to stop loving people because they reject the gospel. In fact, it's pretty much the opposite, that we continue to love, we continue to serve, no matter people's reactions, right? Love is what? Patient, it's long-suffering, right? These, these words mean it goes on for a while. And one of my favorite examples of this in the Bible is um, from a dude in uh, Corinth named Sothenes, right? Uh, great baby names, right? Sothenes. Um, now, Sothenes, so what happens is Paul goes, and his usual custom is he goes and he sets up uh, like shop at a synagogue with a group of Jewish people in these towns. And this is kind of was his pattern. And he goes, and the leader of the synagogue is this guy, Sothenes. And, man, that's pretty hard to say. Anyway, uh, uh, anyway, so he gets real mad, kind of persecutes Paul. Paul has to take off, sets up shop somewhere else. It's kind of a long story. But then here's the thing. You open up the book of Corinthians, which was written a while later. So then Paul leaves Corinth, takes off, does more missionary stuff. Later on, writes a book back to this church that he founded. And you know what he says at the beginning of the book? He's like, hey, it's Paul and Sosthenes. We're writing to you church folks. This dude somehow, who was hostile to the faith and was violent against Paul, he becomes, and most scholars agree, it's probably the same dude. Uh, this dude becomes a believer at some point, right? Paul, even though he took the gospel away and he set up shop next door, you know, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home kind of a thing, uh, he's still invested in this guy. I don't know what happened. I'm so curious. I can't wait to die to find out the rest of the story, right? I want to sit down with Sosthenes and ask him what happened. But Paul continued to press. He continued to love and he continued to serve because so this command to shake the dust off your feet, right, is not this universal treat everybody like garbage if they... Uh, reject the gospel. That's not what's going on here. But what is going on here is Jesus is saying, when you're presenting the gospel to people, you need to present the whole gospel. And part of the whole gospel is the reality of the judgment of God and how God takes sin very seriously. Um, the temptation is let's cop out. Let's not talk about hell, right? It's scary. It's not very politically correct. It turns people off. Well, maybe if I present this other part of the gospel, but not this part, then they'll be a little more palatable. But it's like that whole, you know, what you save them, what is it, what you save them with, you save them too, right? I mean, although we don't save people, that's a terrible saying, but you know what I mean, right? Like, they're not getting the whole picture. They're not getting the whole gospel. And so let me just say, although we're going to dig into this a little bit more next week, because if you look forward in your Bible, the next section is Jesus, woe to these cities, woe to those cities who reject me. It's going to be worse for you than Sodom, you know, kind of stuff. Um, but let me just say a couple of things about hell and this idea of judgment. Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else in scripture, right? Paul doesn't talk about hell a lot, actually. Jesus does. <clears throat> there we go. <clears throat> Frog in my throat. And um, <clears> throat> I forgot my water bottle. Um, 
The second thing is, uh, oh, and the reason is because he cares about people and he loves people. The second thing is the scriptures are pretty clear about the judgment of God. I don't understand how churches, I won't say the name of churches right next to my house, but how churches can basically go through the gospels or go through the New Testament like Thomas Jefferson and cut out the parts they don't like. I mean, that's the only way you can get to God's not going to judge sin, right? The, the New Testament is full of this stuff. The third thing I'll say is when you're talking about hell, we can't talk about hell based off of medieval images of the devil with red horns and fire poking people with sticks, right? Because the truth is he's the first one going, right? Hell is not run by the devil. Hell is for the devil. And so we have to have a biblical view of hell. And what that means is hell is probably not literal fire, right? Some people think it is, and that's fine. But like most likely hell is the fire imagery is just that, right? It's imagery and metaphor. But here's the thing. You never use imagery to describe something less. You always use it to describe something more. So if hell is not literal fire, whatever it is, that imagery is used because, I mean, that's like one of the worst things that we can think of as humans, right? It's just never-ending being burned to death, right? Or, you know, it's horrible. That sounds horrible. So the imagery of, God, of fire to talk about God's wrath means God's wrath is worse, and that judgment is really going to be terrible. And then the fourth thing, though, is that our passion should not be getting the theology of hell right. It should be people. Francis Chan wrote a great book about this called Erasing Hell, if you ever want to read it. And in that book, there's a section where he talks about, like, I'm here writing this theology book about hell in a Starbucks filled with people who are going there. And he, like, you can just see in his writing that his heart was breaking as he was sitting there writing this. And that's what we should be thinking about is, man, our heart should break for our neighbors as we're going out and we're, the harvest is plentiful and all that. Because without the gospel, right, this is the fate of mankind. Is we've rebelled against God and we're heading into this judgment. All right, so that's the passage. We're going to read the rest of it next time. Um, but let me just apply a few things here. Let me give you a couple of application points if you want to write these down too. I had slides for these, but who knows what happened to the slides. Um, oh, they're in there too. There you go. Yeah, that's right, the U version. They're in the U version if you followed along. Here's the first one. When we're talking about the mission of God, we have to be next, well, I'm gonna say this. Normally what I would do is I would get into motivation and that sort of stuff, like why are we going on the mission of God? Next week's sermon is called the motivate, you know, the king gives the motivation, right? So next week we're gonna hit that. Right now, I just wanna look at this and talk about as the porch, what are some things we can learn about going on mission? Here's the first thing, be proactive. We have to be proactive in the mission of God. Jesus sent the 72. He sent the 12. The Great Commission, right, is get out there and spread the gospel. We, the, you know, these guys went out. I swear, so many believers completely ignore this. We think that if we sit around and we watch Ted Lasso, somehow the mission of God is going to show up to us on our couch. We're so lazy about the mission of God, right, when we should be engaged in the mission in all these areas of our lives, but we have to be intentional. Um, in Romans 1... There's a section where uh, Paul is talking, and he says this in verse, four, one, uh, verse 14. I'll read this to you. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So he says, I'm under obligation to all these people. A more literal like translation there is, I'm in debt to these people. I owe these people. But what is it that he owes them? In verse 15, he talks about, um, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you guys too. So he says in verse 14, I owe these guys something and I owe you something, and that something is the gospel. He owes them the gospel. And Paul's point here is this. I've received grace. Now I have the cure. 
and I owe that good news to the other people who are sick. But how? How do we pay that debt, right? What do we do? We have to be intentional. And the way we talk about this at the porch is, I want you guys to leverage your hobbies. I want you to leverage your life. Think about the mission of God in all areas of your life. Um, build relationships and invest with people. We talk about this a lot. This is not news to anybody here. Um, but we want you to see, I really want you to see the world through this lens of the mission and the gospel. The mission is not something that we do as a church. It's the main thing that we do as a church. Second, here's the second thing I want you to think about. When possible, go with somebody else. Okay, so this is easier for married couples than single folks, but you guys get the idea. Go with somebody else when you can. Again, if Paul needed people, so do you. Um, and again, this is not new info, right? Paul was better than you. <laughs> but uh, I want you to team up as you do things. Um, and in the vein of teaming up and doing things, when you're doing missional things, I think the bill scored again. I hear the crowd. Um, it's a bill's bar, like, you know, at the end of the block there. Buffalo. I didn't know people from Buffalo were in San Francisco, but apparently. Um, anyway, in the theme of going with people, here's the thing. It's okay to be Robin to somebody else's Batman. Okay? I think when everybody is thinking about the mission of God and the church, everybody is thinking about what can I start? How can I be Batman? How can I be the alpha in this group of two people? Everybody wants to be Paul. Nobody wants to be Barnabas, right? But it's okay to be the Robin to somebody else who's already got something great going on. Right, so for example, um, Stephen's got Jesus Otaku stuff, right, where he goes and he talks to other dorks about dorks. No, I'm just kidding. About what is it? Is, is it anime? Is that what that is? Yeah, yeah, anime stuff, right? That's super cool. What Stephen did was he took this thing that he loves anyway, and he's like, "How can I leverage this for the gospel?" Right now, maybe you only kind of like anime, but you can go with Stephen to that sort of stuff and be Stephen's Robin as he goes and he's Batman. I don't know if you can mix Batman and anime metaphors, but you know what I mean. Right? Or Kayla and John, they've got Dungeons and Dragons. I don't like Dungeons and Dragons. Maybe somebody kind of likes it. I don't know. Uh, go be Robin with their Batman. You know what I mean? Find something. You don't have to come up with a great idea. You can, it's okay to piggyback on somebody else's great idea with the mission of God as we're going two by two. All right, here's the third thing. Pabst, you know, we talk about PBR, our Pabst pathway with our people. So the third idea is this. Engage in the whole mission, the complete mission. Um, and we at the porch, we do this with our Pabst Blue Ribbon Pathway, right? So we, you remember it, it's pray for people, uh, ask them about their lives, bless them in ways nobody else would, share your story with them, and then teach or talk about the gospel, right? Um, here, check this out. We put these on the back. I made magnets that, that have the Pabst Pathway. Take one of these magnets home today. I made stickers. Take as many as you want. We can always print more. Speaking of, uh, and we made just porch stickers and magnets if you want to throw one of those on your fridge. Um, but speaking of this, just completely off topic, when you buy a certain amount of stickers, for some reason this company randomly sends you a bottle of hot sauce that they make. I think it's like the guy's hobby who runs this company, makes hot sauce. Anyway, there's a bottle of hot sauce back there because I don't like it. If anybody wants hot sauce, you can take that with you. Melissa says it's pretty hot. So, you know, right? You got to, the hot sauce is pretty hot. Yeah. So anyway, if somebody wants to take the hot sauce, I don't want it. <laughs> take the hot sauce home. Okay. Here's the thing. With the Pabst Blue Ribbon thing, you have to do both sides of the P, you know, the P-A-B-S-T, right? The cop-out is this. I'm going to do the P-A-B without the last half. Is I'm going to pray for people 
I'm going to ask them about their lives, and I'm going to bless them in ways nobody else would, and then that's the end of the story, and I'm not going to get around to sharing the gospel. And I had a friend who I was kind of talking to uh, firmly about this at my old church because he said to me, well, that's not what God calls me to do. I just plant seeds. And I was like, no, you plant baloney. That's what you plant because that's not any, <laughs> there's nothing in here that says that that's how it works, right? Is that, that's a cop-out is what I told him. He didn't believe me, but it was, it was a cop-out, right? But here's the other side is you have, then you have some churches that'll do that second half. You need to share your testimony. You need to talk to people about the gospel and completely ignore the first half of the pathway where we're praying for people, we're asking them about their lives, we're blessing them in ways nobody else would. You have to do the whole thing. And uh, let me show you this. The whole Pabst pathway shows up in our text. This is a little bit of a stretch, but it's still pretty good, right? Watch this. Um, Pray. In verse 2, this is literally what Jesus tells them, the first thing you should do. Pray for more workers. Pray for this mission. Pray for the harvest. Pray earnestly, right? If we think that we can convince people into faith, this, gets, this is the first thing that gets dropped. We don't pray for people. We just think this is the mission of God and this is what we're going to do. And here's our plan and we've outlined things and all this, right? But the, the first and main thing that we should do is pray because it's like Lydia in the book of Acts, right? The Lord opened her heart to believe, That's what we have to be praying for him to do, going out in front of us and opening people's hearts. Prayer is the key. So the first question then is, are you really invested in praying for your people that I've told you? Like, remember, make your little list of a couple of people to share and pray for and talk. Are you really praying for these people for real? The second thing is ask, right? We have to ask people. um, In in our, in verse five, Jesus tells them, you know, find the people of peace. Well, how are they going to know who's people of peace and who's not people of peace? They have to interact with people and probably a handful of people and then decide which one of these are the people of peace, right? But that's what we want to be doing is, uh, is asking people and listening. We want to be really good listeners. You remember my hero, one of my heroes, Francis Schaeffer, has that quote about if I'm going to talk to somebody about faith, I don't remember the exact quote, I'm paraphrasing, but if I'm going to talk to somebody about Jesus and I have an hour, I'm going to spend 55 minutes listening. Right, that's really good advice, right? So we have to be really good at asking. And so let me give you just a few questions as you're talking with people. You ask them stuff like, well, what do you believe about whatever it is, you know, some topic? And then you dig into that, right? Why do you believe that? How did you come to believe that? Uh, How strong is that belief? That's a really good question because sometimes people will go, you know, I never thought about that. I don't know. I mean, I guess I kind of believe it. You know, that question, how strong do you believe something? Sometimes it's, this is my entire being. <laughs> this is what I believe. Um, ask him, is, how is that belief working out for you? Right? Is, is what you hoped coming out of this belief? Um, do you know others who think like this? Like, what community do you have of people? Just ask those kind of questions. And then instead of thinking to yourself, i got to jump in and fix all the stupid things this person just said, just sit there and listen and shut up. Right? Let people talk. Let, let them express themselves and learn about who they are. Right? So ask those leading questions. The third thing is bless. Bless them in ways nobody else would. This one's a little more obvious in our passage. Right? Jesus tells them, go. What's a better way to bless people than heal their physical needs? And, and like I said, for us, um, we're not limiting this to healing. Um, but we're saying we're going to look for places where the system of Babylon and injustice and the fallen and sinful world is hurting people. And we're going to say, what can we do to kind of wedge in here and make this life a little bit better? What can we do to turn this around uh, just a tiny little bit? And um, the last thing then is to share and teach. I'm kind of lumping these together. Share your story and talk about the gospel. And in verse 10, he tells him, 
preach to people, talk about judgment, but also tell them the kingdom of God has come upon you, right? We're holding the greatest news of all time. We have this story. We talked about this on Wednesday, right? We have this great story. We have to share this story uh, with people. This is what everybody is longing to hear. But instead, we just sit on it, right? We cover the lamp. We do the beginning of the paps thing because it makes us feel good, but we don't do the end of it because we're timid and we're scared. The Pabst Blue Ribbon, the reason I stole that from my friend Andrew, I love it, is because it's so complete. It's such a good, you know, it's not linear, but it's a good, like, pathway to think about. And so what I want, there's a, I'm, actually, I didn't plan this, but it worked out great, that after the summer series, this was the first one back in the book of Luke. And I love that because we just spent the whole summer talking about some of the gospel basics, right? We learned about Revelation and the, the, the eschatology, right? Like the time that we're in. We learned about salvation. We learned about who God is, why we trust the Bible. We learned about all this stuff. But now that was sort of our boot camp, right? Now it's time to get out there, right? Now it's time to actually go do something. Spring training's over. The season is starting, right? It's time to get out there and do something. And so... Um, this is the kind of church I want us to be. So I just want you to think about with those application points, right? Think about all those points in the Pabst Blue Ribbon thing. Take one of these magnets home. Pray for people. Ask yourself, which one of these am I naturally going to avoid doing because of my fallen and sinful nature? And where do I need to be sort of intentional in the way that I'm going out um, with other people?